CD 10. There was bright blue light ahead and dark red light behind, and it amazed Susan how she could see both kinds without opening her eyes and turning her head. Eyes open or shut, she couldn't see herself. All that told her that she was something else besides mere point of view was a slight pressure on what she remembered as her fingers, and the sound of someone laughing close to her. A voice said, The sweeper said everyone has to find a teacher and then find their way. And, said Susan, this is my way. It's the way home. And then, with a noise that was unromantically very similar to the kind Jason would make by putting a wooden ruler on the edge of his desk and twanging it, the journey ended. It might not even have begun. The glass clock was in front of her, full size, glittering. There was no blue glow inside. It was just a clock, entirely transparent and ticking. Susan looked down the length of her arm and up his arm to Lobsang. He let go of her hand. "'We're here,' he said. "'With the clock,' said Susan. She could feel herself gasping to get her breath back. "'This is only part of the clock,' said Lobsang. "'The other part. "'The bit outside the universe. "'Yes, the clock has many dimensions. "'Do not be afraid.' "'I don't think I have ever been afraid of anything in my life,' said Susan, still gulping air. "'Not really afraid. "'I get angry. "'I'm getting angry now, in fact. "'Are you Lobsang or are you Jeremy?' "'Yes.' "'Yes, I walked into that. "'Are you Lobsang and are you Jeremy?' "'Much closer.' "'Yes, I will always remember both of them, "'but I would prefer you to call me Lobsang. "'Lobsang has the better memories. "'I never liked the name Jeremy, even when I was Jeremy. "'You really are both of them. "'I am everything about them that was worth being, I hope. "'They were very different, and they were both me, "'born just an instant apart, "'and neither of them was very happy by himself.' It makes you wonder if there is anything to astrology after all. Oh, there is, said Susan. Delusion, wishful thinking and gullibility. Don't you ever let go? I haven't yet. Why? I suppose because in this world, after everyone panics, there's always got to be someone to tip the wee out of the shoe. The clock ticked. The pendulum swung. But the hands did not move. Interesting, said Lobsang. "'You're not a follower of the way of Mrs. Cosmopolite, are you?' "'I don't even know what it is,' said Susan. "'Have you got your breath back now?' "'Yes. Let's turn around, then.' Personal time moved on again, and a voice behind them said, "'Is this yours?' Behind them there were glass steps. At the top of the steps was a man dressed like a history monk, shaven-headed, besandled. The eyes gave away a lot more. A young man who'd been alive for a very long time, Mrs. Ogg had said, and she had been right. He was holding a struggling death of rats by the scruff of his robe. Er, uh, he's his own, said Susan as Lobsang bowed. Then please take him away with you. We cannot have him running around here. Hello, my son. Lobsang walked towards him and they embraced briefly and formally. Father, said Lobsang, straightening up. This is Susan. She has been very helpful. Of course she has, said the monk, smiling at Susan. She is helpfulness personified. He put the death of rats on the floor and prodded him forward. Yes, I'm very dependable, said Susan, and interestingly sarcastic, too. 
the monk added. I am Wen. Thank you for joining us, and for helping our son find himself. Susan looked from the father to the son. The words and the movements were stilted and chilly, but there was a communication going on that she wasn't party to, and it was happening a lot faster than speech. Aren't we supposed to be saving the world? she said. I don't want to rush anybody, of course. There's something I must do first, said Lobsang. I must meet my mother. Have we got type? Susan began, and then added, We have, haven't we? All the time in the world. Oh, no. Far more time than that, said Wen. Besides, there's always time to save the world. Time appeared. Again there was the impression that a figure that was in the air, unfocused, was resolving itself into a million specks of matter that poured together and filled a shape in space, slowly at first, and then someone was there. She was a tall woman, quite young, dark-haired, wearing a long red and black dress. By the look on her face, Susan thought, she had been weeping, but she was smiling now. Wen took Susan by the arm and gently pulled her aside. "'They'll want to talk,' he said. "'Shall we walk?' The room vanished. Now there was a garden with peacocks and fountains, and a stone seat upholstered with moss. Lawns unrolled towards woodlands that had the manicured look of an estate that had been maintained for hundreds of years, so that nothing grew here that was not wanted, or in the wrong place. Long-tailed birds, their plumage like living jewels, flashed from treetop to treetop. Deeper in the woods, other birds called. As Susan watched, a kingfisher alighted on the edge of a fountain. It glanced at her and flew away, its wing-beats sounding like the snapping of fans. "'Look,' said Susan, "'I don't... I'm not... Look, I understand this sort of thing. Really, I am not stupid. My grandfather has a garden where everything is black. But Lobsang built the clock. Well, part of him did.' "'So he's saving the world and destroying it all at once?' "'Family trait,' said Wen. "'It is what time does at every instant.' He gave Susan the look of a teacher confronted with a keen but stupid pupil. "'Think like this,' he said at last. "'Think of everything. "'It's an everyday word, but everything means everything. "'It's a much bigger word than universe.' and everything contains all possible things that can happen at all possible times in all possible worlds. Don't look for complete solutions in any one of them. Sooner or later, everything causes everything else. Are you saying one little world is not important, then? said Susan. Wen waved a hand, and two glasses of wine appeared on the stone. Everything... "'Is as important as everything else,' he said. "'Susan grimaced. "'You know, that's why I've never liked philosophers,' she said. "'They make it all sound grand and simple, "'and then you step out into the world that's full of complications. "'I mean, look around. "'I bet this garden needs regular weeding, "'and the fountains have to be unblocked, "'and the peacocks shed feathers and dig up the lawn, "'and if they don't do that, then this is just a fake. "'No, everything is real.' said Wen. At least it is as real as anything else. But this is a perfect moment. He smiled at Susan again. Against one perfect moment the centuries beat in vain. I'd prefer a more specific philosophy, said Susan.
she tried the wine. It was perfect. Certainly. I expected that you would. I see you cling to logic as a limpet clings to a rock in a storm. Let me see. Defend the small spaces. Don't run with scissors. And remember that there is often an unexpected chocolate, said Wen. He smiled. And never resist a perfect moment. A breeze made the fountains splash over the sides of their bowls, just for a second. Wen stood up. And now I believe my wife and son have finished their meeting, he said. The garden faded. The stone seat melted like mist as soon as Susan got up, although until then it had felt as solid as, well, rock. The wine glass vanished from her hand, leaving only a memory of its pressure on her fingers and the taste lingering in her mouth. Lobsang was standing in front of the clock. Time herself was not visible, but the song that wove through the rooms now had a different tone. "'She's happier,' said Lobsang. "'She's free now.' Susan looked around. Wen had vanished along with the garden. There was nothing but the endless glass rooms. "'Don't you want to talk to your father?' she said. "'Later. There will be plenty of time,' said Lobsang. "'I shall see to it.' The way he said it, so carefully dropping the words into place, made her turn. "'You're going to take over,' she said. "'You are time now.' "'Yes.' "'But you're mostly human.' "'So?' Lobsang's smile took after his father. It was the gentle, and to Susan the infuriating smile of a god. "'What in all these rooms?' she demanded. "'Do you know?' "'One perfect moment in each one.' An oodleplex of oodleplexes. I'm not certain there's such a thing as a genuinely perfect moment, said Susan. Can we go home now? Lobsang wrapped the edge of his robe around his fist and smashed it against the glass front panel of the clock. It shattered and dropped to the ground. When we get to the other side, he said, don't stop and don't look back. There will be a lot of flying glass. I'll try to dive behind one of the benches, said Susan. They probably won't be there. Squeak! The death of rats had scurried up the side of the clock and was peering cheerfully over the top. What do we do about that? said Lobsang. That looks after itself, said Susan. I never worry about it. Lobsang nodded. Take my hand, he said. She reached out. With his free hand, Lobsang grasped the pendulum and stopped the clock. A blue-green hole opened in the world. The return journey was a lot swifter, but when the world existed again, she was falling into water. It was brown, muddy, and stank of dead plants. Susan surfaced, fighting against the drag of her skirts, and trod water while she tried to get her bearings. The sun was nailed to the sky, the air was heavy and humid, and a pair of nostrils was watching her from a few feet away. Susan had been brought up to be practical, and that meant swimming lessons. The Quirm College for Young Ladies had been very advanced in that respect, and its teachers took the view that a girl who couldn't swim two lengths of the pool with her clothes on wasn't making an effort. To their credit, she'd left knowing four swimming strokes and several life-saving techniques, and was entirely at home in the water. She also knew what to do if you were sharing the same stretch of water with a hippopotamus, which was to find another stretch of water. Hippos only look big and cuddly from a distance. Close up, they just look big. Susan summoned up all the inherited powers of the deathly voice plus the terrible authority of the schoolroom and yelled, Go away! 
the creature floundered madly in its effort to turn around, and Susan struck out for the shore. It was an unsure shore, the water becoming land and a tangle of sandbanks, sucking black muck, rotted tree roots and swamp. Insects swirled around, and the cobbles were muddy underfoot, and there was the sound of horsemen in the mist, and ice piled up against dead trees, and Lobsang taking her arm. "'Found you,' he said. "'You just shattered history,' said Susan. "'You broke it.' The hippo had come as a shock. She'd never realised one mouth could hold so much bad breath, or be so big and deep. "'I know, I had to. There was no other way. Can you find Lutze? I know death can locate any living thing, and since you—' "'All right, all right, I know,' said Susan darkly. She held out her hand and concentrated. An image of Lutze's extremely heavy lifetimer appeared and gathered weight. "'He's only a few hundred yards over there,' she said, pointing to a frozen drift. "'And I know when he is,' said Lobsang. "'Only sixty thousand years away, so—' Lutze, when they found him, was looking calmly up at an enormous mammoth. Under its huge hairy brow, its eyes were squinting with the effort both of seeing him and of getting all three of its brain cells lined up, so that it could decide whether to trample on him or gouge him out of the frost-bound landscape.' One brain cell was saying gouge, one was going for trample, but the third had wandered off and was thinking about as much sex as possible. At the far end of its trunk, Lutze was saying, So you've never heard of Rule One, then? Lobsang stepped out of the air beside him. We must go, sweeper. The appearance of Lobsang did not seem to surprise Lutze at all, although he did seem annoyed at the interruption. No rush, wonder boy, he said. I've got this perfectly under control. "'Where's the lady?' said Susan. "'Over by that snowdrift,' said Lutze, "'indicating with his thumb while still trying to outstare "'a pair of eyes five feet apart. "'When this turned up, she screamed and twisted her ankle. "'Look, you can see I've made it nervous.' "'Susan waded into the drift and hauled Unity upright. "'Come on, we're leaving,' she said brusquely. "'I saw his head cut off,' Unity babbled, "'and then suddenly we were here.' "'Yes,' "'That kind of thing happens,' said Susan. Unity stared at her, wild-eyed. "'Life is full of surprises,' said Susan. But the sight of the creature's distress made her hesitate. "'All right, the thing was one of them, one that was merely wearing... "'Well, at least had started out merely wearing a body as a kind of coat, "'but now, after all, you could say that about everyone, couldn't you?' Susan had even wondered if the human soul without the anchor of her body would end up, eventually... As something like an auditor, which, to be fair, meant that Unity, who was getting more firmly wrapped in flesh by the minute, was something like a human. And that was a pretty good definition of Lobsang, and, if it came to it, Susan as well. Who knew where humanity began and where it finished? "'Come along,' she said. "'We've got to stick together, right?' Like shards of glass spinning through the air, fragments of history drifted and collided and intersected in the dark. There was a lighthouse, though, the valley of Oidong held on to the ever-repeating day. In the hall, almost all of the giant cylinders stood silent, all time run out. Some had split, some had melted, some had exploded, some had simply vanished, but one still turned. Big Thunder, the oldest and largest, ground slowly on its basalt bearing, winding time out at one end and back on the other ensuring, as Wen had decreed, that the perfect day would never end. Rambert Handicides was all alone in the hall, 
sitting beside the turning stone in the light of a butter lamp and occasionally throwing a handful of grease onto the base. A clink of stone made him peer into the darkness. It was heavy with the smoke of fried rock. There the sound was again, and then the scratch and flare of a match. Lord say, he said, is that you? I hope so, Rambert, but who knows these days? Lutzay stepped into the light and sat down. Keeping it busy, are they? Handersides sprang to his feet. It's been terrible, sweeper. Everyone's up at the Mandala Hall. It's worse than the Great Crash. There's bits of history everywhere, and we've lost half the spinners. We'll never be able to put it all... No, no, you look like a man who's had a busy day, said Lutzay kindly. Not got a lot of sleep, eh? Tell you what, I'll take care of this. You go and get a bit of shut-eye, OK? We thought you were lost out in the world, and... The monk burbled. And now I'm back, smiled Lutzay, patting him on the shoulder. There's still that little alcove round the corner where you repair the smaller spinners, and there's still those unofficial bunks for when it's the night shift, and you only need a couple of lads to keep their eye on things. Handysides nodded, and looked guilty. Lutzay wasn't supposed to know about the bunks. You get along then, said Lutzay. He watched the man's retreating back and added quietly, and if you wake up, you might turn out to be the luckiest idiot that ever there was. Well, Wonderboy, what next? We put everything back, said Lobsang, emerging from the shadows. You know how long that took us last time? Yes, said Lobsang, looking around the stricken hall and heading towards the podium. I do. I don't think it'll take me as long. I wish you sounded more certain, said Susan. I'm pretty certain, said Lobsang running his fingers over the bobbins on the board. Lutzay waved a cautionary hand at Susan. Lobsang's mind was already on the way somewhere else, and now she wondered how large a space it was occupying. His eyes were closed. "'The spinners that are left. Can you move the jumpers?' he said. "'I can show the ladies how to,' said Lutzay. "'Are there not monks who know how to do this?' said Unity. "'It would take too long. I am an apprentice to a sweeper.' They would run around asking questions, said Lobsang. You will not. He's got a point right enough, said Lutzay. People will start saying, what is the meaning of this? And bick it, and we'll never get anything done. Lobsang looked down at the bobbins and then across at Susan. Imagine that there is a jigsaw all in pieces, but I am very good at spotting edges and shapes. Very good. And all the pieces are moving. But because they were once linked, they have by their very nature a memory of that link. Their shape is the memory. Once a few are in the right position, the rest will be easier. Oh, and imagine that all the bits are scattered across the whole of eventuality and mixing randomly with pieces from other histories. Can you grasp all that? Yes, I think so. Good. Everything I've just said is nonsense. It bears no resemblance to the truth of the matter in any way at all. "'But it is a lie that you can understand, I think. "'And then afterwards—' "'You're going to go, aren't you?' said Susan. "'It was not a question. "'I will not have enough power to stay,' said Lobsang. "'You need power to stay human,' said Susan. "'She hadn't been aware of the rise of her heart, but now it was sinking. "'Yes, even trying to think in a mere four dimensions is a terrible effort. "'I'm sorry.' Even to hold in my mind the concept of something called now is hard. You thought I was mostly human. I'm mostly not, he sighed. If only I could tell you what everything looks like to me, it's so beautiful. Lobsang 
stared into the air above the little wooden bobbins. Things twinkled. There were complex curves and spirals, brilliant against the blackness. It was like looking at a clock in pieces, with every wheel and spring carefully laid out in the dark in front of him. Dismantled, controllable, every part of it understood. But a number of small but important things had gone ping into the corners of a very large room. If you were really good, then you could work out where they'd landed. "'You've only got about a third of the spinners,' came the voice of Lutze. "'The rest are smashed.' Lobsang couldn't see him. There was only the glittering show before his eyes. "'That is true. But once they were whole,' he said. He raised his hands and lowered them on the bobbins. Susan looked around at the sudden grinding noise and saw row after row of columns rising out of the dust and debris. They stood like lines of soldiers, dust cascading from them. "'Good trick!' Lutze shouted to Susan's ear above the thunder. "'Feeding time into the spinners themselves. Theoretically possible, but we never managed to do it.' "'Do you know what he's actually going to do?' Susan shouted back. "'Yeah! Snatch the extra time out of bits of history that are too far ahead and shove it into the bits that have fallen behind.' "'Sounds simple. Just one problem. What?' "'Can't do it! Losses!' Lutze snapped his fingers, trying to explain time dynamics to a non-initiate. "'Friction! Divergence! All sorts of stuff! You can't create time on the spinners! You can only move it around!' There was a sudden bright blue glow around Lobsang. It flickered over the board and then snapped across the air to form arcs of light leading to all the procrastinators. It crawled between the carved symbols and clung to them in a thickening layer like cotton winding on a reel. Lutze looked at the whirling light and the shadow within it, almost lost against the glow. At least, he added, until now. The spinners wound up to their working speed and then went faster under the lash of the light. It poured across the cavern in a solid, unending stream. Flames licked around the bottom of the nearest cylinder, the base was glowing, and the noise from its stone bearing was joining a rising, cavern-filling scream of stone in distress. Lutze shook his head. "'You, Susan, buckets of water from the wells! You, Miss Unity, you follow her with the grease pails!' "'And what are you going to do?' said Susan, grabbing two buckets. "'I'm going to worry like hell, and that's not an easy job, believe me!' Steam built up then, and there was a smell of burning butter— there was no time for anything but to run from the wells to the nearest spitting bearing and back, and there was not enough time even for that. The spinners turned back and forth. There was no need for the jumpers now. The crystal rods that had survived the crash hung uselessly from their hooks as time arced overhead from one procrastinator to another, showing up as red or blue glows in the air. It was a sight to frighten the knoptas of any trained spinner driver Lutze knew. It looked like a cascade running wild, but there was some control in there, some huge pattern being woven. Bearings squealed, butter bubbled, the bases of some spinners were smoking, but things held. Their being held, Lutze thought. He looked up at the registers. The board slammed back and forth, sending lines of red or blue or bare wood across the wall of the cavern. There was a pall of white smoke around them as their own wooden bearings gently charred. Past and future were streaming through the air. The sweeper could feel them. On the podium, Lobsang was wrapped in the glow. The bobbins were not being moved any more. What was going on now was on some other level, which didn't need the intervention of crude mechanisms. Lion tamer, 
Lutze thought. He starts off needing chairs and whips, but one day, if he's really good, he can go into the cage and do the show using nothing more than eye and voice. But only if he's really good. And then you'll know if he's really good, because he'll come out of the cage again. He stopped his prowl along the thundering lines because there was a change in the sound. One of the biggest spinners was slowing down. It stopped as Lutze watched and didn't start again. Lutze raced around the cavern until he found Susan and Unity. Three more spinners stopped before he reached them. He's doing it! He's doing it! Come away! he shouted. With a jolt that shook the floor, another spinner stopped. The three ran towards the end of the cavern, where the smaller procrastinators were still whirling, but the halt was already speeding down the rows. Spinner after spinner slammed to a standstill, the domino effect overtaking the humans until, when they reached the little chalk spinners, they were in time to see the last ones rattle gently to a standstill. There was silence, except for the sizzle of grease and the click of cooling rock. "'Is it all over?' said Unity wiping the sweat from her face with her dress and leaving a trail of sequins. Lutze and Susan looked at the glow at the other end of the hall and then at one another. I don't think so, said Susan. Lutze nodded. I think it's just, he began. Bars of green light leapt from spinner to spinner and hung in the air as rigid as steel. They flickered on and off between the columns, filling the air with thunderclaps, Patterns of switching snapped back and forth across the cavern. The tempo increased. The thunderclaps became one long roll of overpowering sound. The bars brightened, expanded, and then the air was all one brilliant light, which vanished. The sound ceased so abruptly that the silence clanged. The trio got to their feet slowly. "'What was that?' said Unity. "'I think he made some changes,' said Lutze. "'The spinners were silent. "'The air was hot. "'Smoke and steam filled the roof of the cavern. "'Then, responding to the routine of humanity's eternal wrestle with time, "'the spinners began to pick up the load. "'It came gently like a breeze, "'and the spinners took the strain from the smallest to the largest, "'settling once again into their gentle, ponderous pirouette. "'Perfect,' said Lutze. "'Almost as good as it was, I'll bet.' "'Only almost,' said Susan, wiping the butter off her face. "'Well, he's partly human,' said the sweeper. "'They turned to the podium, and it was empty. "'Susan was not surprised. "'He'd be weak now, of course. "'Of course, something like this would take it out of anyone. "'Of course, he'd need to rest. "'Of course.' "'He's gone,' she said flatly. "'Who knows?' said Lutze. For is it not written, you never know what's going to turn up. The reassuring rumble of the procrastinators now filled the cave. Lutze could feel the time flows in the air. It was invigorating, like the smell of the sea. I ought to spend more time down here, he thought. He broke history and repaired it, said Susan. Cause and cure. That makes no sense. Not in four dimensions, said Unity. In eighteen it's all perfectly clear. And now may I suggest you ladies leave by the back way, said Lutze. People are going to come running down here in a minute, and it's all going to get very excitable. Probably best if you aren't around. What will you do? said Susan. Lie, said Lutze happily. It's amazing how often that works. Ick, 
Susan and Unity stepped out of a door in the rock that led through rhododendron groves to the path out of the valley. The sun was touching the horizon and the air was warm, although there were snowfields quite close by. At the lip of the valley the water from the stream plunged over a cliff in a fall so long that it landed as a sort of rain. Susan pulled herself onto a rock and settled down to wait. "'It is a long way to Ank Morpork, said Unity. "'We'll have a lift,' said Susan. The first stars were already coming out. "'The stars are very pretty,' said Unity. "'Do you really think so?' "'I am learning to. Humans believe they are. "'The thing is, I mean, there's times when you look at the universe "'and you think, what about me? "'And you can just hear the universe replying, "'Well, what about you?' "'Unity appeared to consider this. "'Well, what about you?' she said. "'Susan sighed. "'Exactly,' she sighed again. "'You can't think about just one person while you're saving the world. "'You have to be a cold, calculating bastard.' "'That sounded as if you were quoting somebody,' said Unity. "'Who said that?' "'Some total idiot,' said Susan. "'She tried to think of other things and added, "'We didn't get all of them. "'There's still auditors down there somewhere.' "'That will not matter,' said Unity calmly. "'Look at the sun.' "'Well?' "'It is setting.' "'And?' "'That means time is flowing through the world. "'The body exacts its toll, Susan. "'Soon my... my former colleagues, "'bewildered and fleeing, will become tired. "'They will have to sleep. "'I follow you, but... "'I am insane, I know this. "'But the first time it happened to me, "'I found such horror that I cannot express it. "'Can you imagine what it is like?' "'for an intellect a billion years old, "'in a body which is an ape on the back of a rat "'that grew out of a lizard? "'Can you imagine what comes out of the dark places, uncontrolled?' "'What are you telling me?' "'They will die in their dreams.' "'Susan thought about this. "'Millions and millions of years of thinking precise, logical thoughts, "'and then humanity's murky past drops all its terrors on you in one go.' She could almost feel sorry for them. Almost. But you didn't, she said. No, I think I must be different. It is a terrible thing to be different, Susan. Did you have romantic hopes in connection with the boy? The question came out of nowhere, and there was no defence. Unity's face showed nothing but a kind of nervous concern. No, said Susan. Unfortunately, Unity did not seem to have mastered some of the subtleties of human conversation, such as when a tone of voice means, stop this line of inquiry right now, or may huge rats eat you by day and by night. I confess to strange feelings regarding his self that was the clockmaker. Sometimes, when he smiled, he was normal. I wanted to help him, because he seemed so closed in and sad. You don't have to confess to things like that, Susan snapped. "'How do you even know the word romantic anyway?' she added. "'I found some books of poetry.' Unity actually looked embarrassed. "'Really? I've never trusted it,' said Susan. "'Huge, giant, hungry rats.' "'I found it most curious. "'How can words on a page have a power like that? "'There is no doubt that being human is incredibly difficult "'and cannot be mastered in one lifetime,' said Unity sadly. Susan felt a stab of guilt. It wasn't Unity's fault after all. People learn things as they grow up. 
things that never get written down, and unity had never grown up. "'What are you going to do now?' she said. "'I do not know. I have some skills by human standards. Well, if I can help in any way.' It was, she realised later, one of those phrases like, "'How are you?' People were supposed to understand that it wasn't a real question, but Unity hadn't learned that either. "'Thank you. You can indeed help. Um, fine, if I wish to die.' And galloping out of the sunset, some riders were approaching. Tick! Small fires burned in the rubble, brightening the night. Most of the houses had been completely destroyed, although, Soto considered, the word shredded was much more accurate. He was sitting by the side of the street, watching carefully with his begging bowl in front of him. There were, of course, far more interesting and complex ways for a history monk to avoid being noticed, but he'd adopted the begging bowl method ever since Lutze had shown him that people never see anyone who wants them to give him money. He'd watched the rescuers drag the bodies out of the house. Initially, they'd thought that one of them had been hideously mutilated in the explosion, until it had sat up and explained that it was an Igor, and in very good shape for an Igor at that. The other he'd recognised as Dr Hopkins at the Guild of Clockmakers, who was miraculously unharmed. Soto did not believe in miracles, however. He was also suspicious about the fact that the ruined house was full of oranges, that Dr Hopkins was babbling about getting sunlight out of them, and that his sparkling little abacus was telling him that something enormous had happened. He decided to make a report and see what the boys at Oi Dong said. Soto picked up the bowl and set off through the network of alleys back to his base. He didn't bother much about concealment now. Lutze's time in the city had been a process of accelerated education for many citizens of the lurking variety. The people of Ankh-Morpork knew all about Rule 1. At least they had known until now. Three figures lurched out of the dark, and one of them swung a length of wood, which would have connected with Soto's head if he hadn't ducked. He was used to this sort of thing, of course. There was always the occasional slow learner, but they presented no peril that a neat slice couldn't handle. He straightened up, ready to ease his way out of there, and a thick lock of black hair fell onto his shoulder, slithered down his robe and flopped onto the ground. It made barely a sound, but the expression on his face as Soto looked down and then up at his attackers made them draw back. He could see, through the blood-red rage, that they all wore stained grey clothes and looked even crazier than the usual alley people. They looked like accountants gone mad. One of them reached out towards the begging bowl. Everyone has a conditional clause in their life, some little unspoken additional to the rules like except when I really need to, or unless no one is looking, or indeed unless the first one was nougat. Soto had for centuries embraced a belief in the sanctity of all life and the ultimate uselessness of violence. But his personal conditional clause was, but not the hair. No one touches the hair. OK. Even so, everyone ought to have a chance. The attackers recoiled as he threw the bowl against the wall, where the hidden blades bedded themselves in the woodwork. Then it began to tick. Soto ran back down the alley, skidded around the corner, and then shouted, Duck! Unfortunately for the auditors, alas, he was just a tiny, tiny fraction of a second too late. Tick! Lutze was in his garden of five surprises, when the air sparkled and fragmented and swirled into a shape in front of him. He looked up from his ministrations to the yodelling stick insect who'd been off his food. 
Lobsang stood on the path. The boy was wearing a black robe dotted with stars, which blew and rattled its rags around him on this windless morning, as if he was standing in the centre of a gale. Which, Lutze supposed, he more or less was. "'Back again, wonder boy,' said the sweeper. "'In a way, I never leave,' said Lobsang. "'Things have gone well with you.' "'Don't you know?' "'I could. "'But part of me has to do this the traditional way.' "'Well, the abbot is mighty suspicious, "'and there's some more amazing rumours flying around the place. "'I didn't say much. "'What do I know about anything? "'I'm just a sweeper.' "'With that, Lutze turned his attention to the stick insect. "'He'd counted to four under his breath before Lobsang said, "'Please, I have to know. "'I believe that the fifth surprise is you. "'Am I right?' "'Lutze cocked his head.' A low noise, which he'd heard for so long he no longer consciously heard it, had changed its tone. "'The spinners are all winding out,' he said. "'They know you're here, lad. "'I shall not be here long. "'Sweeper, please.' "'You just want to know my little surprise.' "'Yes, I know nearly everything else,' said Lobsang. "'But you are time. "'What I tell you in the future you'll know now, right?' "'But I'm partly human. "'I want to stay partly human.' That means doing things the right way round, please. Lutze sighed and looked for a while down the avenue of cherry blossom. When a pupil can beat the master, there is nothing the master cannot tell him, he said. Remember? Yes. Very well. The iron dojo should be free. Lobsang looked surprised. Um, the iron dojo? Isn't that the one with all the sharp spikes in the walls? And the ceiling, yes. The one that's like being inside a giant porcupine turned inside out. Lobsang looked horrified. But that's not for practice. The rules say that's the one, said Lutze. And I say we use it. Oh, good, no argument, said Lutze. This way, lad. Blossom cascaded from the trees as they passed. They entered the monastery and took the same route they'd taken once before. This brought them into the hall of the mandala, and the sand rose like a dog welcoming its master, and spiralled in the air far below Lobsang's sandals. Alutse heard the shouts of the attendants behind him. News like this spread throughout the valley like ink in water. Hundreds of monks, apprentices and sweepers were trailing the pair as they crossed the inner courtyards, like the tail of a comet. Above them, all the time, petals of cherry blossom fell like snow. At last, Lutze reached the high, round metal door of the Iron Dojo. The clasp of the door was fifteen feet up. No one was supposed to open the door of the dojo who did not belong there. The sweeper nodded at his former apprentice. "'You'll do it,' he said. "'I can't.' Lobsang glanced at him and then looked up at the high clasp. Then he pressed a hand against the iron. Rust spread under his fingers. Red stains spread out across the ancient metal. The door began to creak and then to crumble. Alutse prodded it with an experimental finger, and a slab of biscuit-strong metal fell out and collapsed on the flagstones. "'Very impressed,' he began. A squeaky rubber elephant bounced off his head. "'Pick it!' The crowd parted. The chief acolyte ran forward, carrying the abbot. "'What is the wanna bick it, bick it?' "'Meaning of this, who is was a funny man, this person, sweeper? "'The spinners are dancing in their hall.' "'Lutze bowed. "'He is time, reverend one, as you have suspected,' he said. 
Still bent in the bow, he looked up and sideways at Lobsang. Bow! he hissed. Lobsang looked puzzled. I should bow even now, he said. Bow, your little stonger, or I shall teach you such discipline. Show deserve respect. You are still my apprentice until I give you leave. Shocked, Lobsang bowed. And why do you visit us in our timeless valley? said the abbot. Tell the abbot, Lutze snapped. I I wish to learn the fifth surprise, said Lobsang. Reverend one, said Lutze. Reverend one, Lobsang finished. You visit us just to learn of our clever sweeper's fancies, said the abbot. Yes, er, Reverend one. Of all the things time could be doing, you wish to see an old man's trick? Big hit! Yes, Reverend One. The monks stared at Lobsang. His robe still fluttered this way and that in the teeth of the intangible gale, the stars glinting when they caught the light. The abbot smiled a cherubic smile. So should we all, he said. None of us has ever seen it, I believe. None of us has ever been able to wheedle it out of him. But this is the iron dojo. It has rules. Two may walk in, but only one can walk out. This is no practice dojo. One elephant! You understand. What? I didn't know, Lobsang began, but the sweeper jerked an elbow into his ribs. You'll say yes, Reverend One, he growled. But I never intended. This time the back of his head was slapped. This is no time to stack back, Lutze said. You're too late, Wonder Boy. He nodded to the abbot. My apprentice understands, Reverend One. Your apprentice, sweeper? Oh, yes, Reverend One, said Lutze. My apprentice, until I say otherwise. Really? Big it! Then he may enter. You too, Lutze. But I only meant to... Lobsang protested. Inside! Lutze roared. Will you shame me? Shall people think I have taught you nothing? The inside of the Iron Dojo was indeed a darkened dome full of spikes. They were needle-thin, and there were tens of thousands of them covering the nightmare walls. "'Who would build something like this?' said Lobsang, looking up at the glistening points that covered even the ceiling. "'It teaches the virtues of stealth and discipline,' said Lutze, cracking his knuckles. "'Impetuosity and speed can be as dangerous to the attacker as to the attacked,' as perhaps you will learn. One condition. We are all human here, agreed? Of course, sweeper, we are all human here. And we shall agree no tricks? No tricks, said Lobsang. But are we fighting or are we talking? But look, if only one can walk out, that means I'll have to kill you, Lobsang began. Or vice versa, of course, said Lutze. That is the rule, yes. Shall we get on? "'But I didn't know that.' "'In life, as in breakfast cereal, "'it is always best to read the instructions on the box,' said Lutze. "'This is the Iron Dojo, Wonder Boy.' "'He stepped back and bowed. "'Lobsang shrugged and bowed in return. "'Lutze took a few steps back. "'He closed his eyes for a moment "'and then went through a series of simple moves, limbering up. "'Lobsang winced to hear the crackle of joints.' Around Lobsang there was a series of snapping noises, and for a moment he thought of the old sweeper's bones, 
but tiny hatches all over the curved wall were swinging open. He could hear whispers as people jostled for position, and by the sound of it there were a great many people. He extended his hands and let himself rise gently in the air. "'I thought we said no tricks,' said Lutsay. "'Yes, sweeper,' said Lobsang, poised in midair. "'And then I thought, never forget rule one. "'Aha, well done! You've learned something!' Lobsang drifted closer. "'You cannot believe the things that I have seen since I last saw you,' he said. "'Words cannot describe them. "'I have seen worlds nesting within worlds, "'like those dolls they carved in Uberwald. "'I have heard the music of the years.' I know more than I can ever understand, but I do not know the fifth surprise. It is a trick, a conundrum, a test. Everything is a test, said Lutsay. Then show me the fifth surprise, and I promise not to harm you. You promise not to harm me? I promise not to harm you, Lobsang repeated solemnly. Fine. You only had to ask, said Lutsay, smiling broadly. What? I asked before and you refused. You only had to ask at the right time, Wonder Boy. And it is the right time now? It is written, There's no time like the present, said Lutsay. Behold the fifth surprise. He reached into his robe. A lobsang floated closer. The sweeper produced a cheap carnival mask. It was one of those that consisted of a fake pair of spectacles glued above a big pink nose and finished with a heavy black moustache. He put it on and waggled his ears once or twice. Bow, he said. What? said Lobsang, bewildered. Bow, Lutze repeated. I never said it was a particularly imaginative surprise, did I? He waggled his ears again and then waggled his eyebrows. Good, eh? he said, and grinned. Lobsang laughed. Lutze grinned wider. Lobsang laughed louder and lowered himself to the mat. The blows came out of nowhere. They caught him in the stomach, on the back of the neck, in the small of his back, and swept his legs from under him. He landed on his stomach, with Lutze pinning him down in the straddle of the fish. The only way to get out of that was to dislocate your own shoulders. There was a sort of collective sigh from the hidden watchers. "'They shall fool!' "'What?' said Lobsang into the mat. "'You said none of the monks knew Deja Fu.' "'I never taught it to them, that's why,' said Lutze. "'Promise not to harm me, would you? "'Thank you so very much. "'Submit.' "'You never told me you knew it.' Lutze's knees, rammed into the secret pressure points, were turning Lobsang's arms into powerless lumps of flesh. "'I may be old, but I'm not daft,' Lutze shouted. "'You don't think I'd give away a trick like that, do you?' "'That's not fair!' Lutze leaned down until his mouth was an inch from Lobsang's ear. "'Didn't say fair on the box, lad. "'But you can win, you know. "'You could turn me into dust just like that. "'How could I stop time?' "'I can't do that!' "'You mean you won't, and we both know it. "'Submit!' Lobsang could feel parts of his body trying to shut themselves down. His shoulders were on fire. I can discarnate, he thought. Yes, I can. I could turn him into dust with a thought. And lose. I'd walk out and he'd be dead and I'd have lost. Nothing to worry about, lad, said Lutze calmly now. You just forgot rule 19. Submit. 
Rule 19, said Lobsang, almost pushing himself off the mat until terrible pain forced him down again. What the hell is Rule 19? Yes, yes, submit, submit. Remember never to forget Rule 1, said Lutsang. He released his grip. And always ask yourself, how come it was created in the first place, eh? Lutze got to his feet and went on. But you have performed well, all things considered, and therefore, as your master, I have no hesitation in recommending you for the yellow robe. Besides, he lowered his voice to a whisper, everyone peeking in here has seen me beat time, and that's the sort of thing that'll look really good on my curriculum vitae, if you catch my meaning. Definitely give old rule one a Philip. Let me give you a hand up. He reached down. Lobsang was about to take the hand when he hesitated. Lutze grinned again and gently pulled him upright. But only one of us can leave, sweeper, said Lobsang, rubbing his shoulders. Really? said Lutze. But playing the game changes the rules. I say, the hell with it. The remains of the door were pushed aside by the hands of many monks. There was the sound of someone being hit with a rubber yak. Big hit! And the abbot, I believe... "'Is ready to present you with the robe,' said Lutze. "'Don't make any comment if he dribbles on it, please.' They left the dojo, and followed now by every soul in Oidong, headed for the long terrace. It was, Lutze reminisced later, an unusual ceremony. The abbot did not appear overawed, because babies generally aren't and will throw up over anyone. Besides, Lobsang might have been master of the gulfs of time, but the abbot was master of the valley, and therefore respect was a line that travelled in both directions. But the handing over of the robe had caused a difficult moment. Lobsang had refused it. It had been left to the chief acolyte to ask why, while the whispered currents of surprise washed through the crowd. "'I am not worthy, sir. Lutze has declared that you have completed your apprenticeship, my lo Lobsang lad.' Lobsang bowed. Then I will take the broom and the robe of a sweeper, sir. This time the current was a tsunami. It crashed over the audience. Heads turned. There were gasps of shock and one or two nervous laughs. And from the lines of sweepers who had been allowed to pause in their tasks to watch the event, there was a watchful, intent silence. The chief acolyte licked his suddenly dehydrated lips. But, but... "'You are the incarnation of time.' "'In this valley, sir,' said Lobsang firmly, "'I am as worthy as a sweeper.' "'The chief acolyte looked around, "'but there was no help anywhere. "'The other senior members of the monastery "'had no wish to share in the huge pink cloud of embarrassment. "'The abbot merely blew bubbles "'and grinned the inward-knowing grin "'of all babies everywhere. "'Do we have any, ah, uh, do we... "'Present sweepers with... Uh, do we by any chance?' the acolyte mumbled. Lutze stepped up behind him. "'Can I be of any help, your acolytility?' he said, with a sort of mad keen subservience that was quite alien to his normal attitude. "'Lutze, ah, er, uh, yes, ah... Uh, "'I could fetch a nearly new rope, sir, and a lad can have my old broom "'if you'll sign a chitty for me to get a new one from store, sir,' said Lutze. "'sweating helpfulness at every pore. "'The chief acolyte, drowning well out of his depth, "'seized on this like a passing life-belt. "'Oh, would you be so good, Lutze? "'It is so kind of you. 
Lutze vanished in a blur of helpful speed that once again quite surprised those who thought they knew him. He reappeared with his broom and a robe made white and thin with frequent bashings on the stones by the river. He solemnly handed them over to the chief acolyte. Uh, uh, thanks, you, uh, is there a special ceremony for the, uh, for the, uh, for, um, the man babbled. Very simple one, sir, said Lutze, still radiating eagerness. Wording is quite loose, sir, but generally we say, this is your robe, look after it, it belongs to the monastery, sir, and then with the broom we say something like, is your broom, treat it well, it is your friend, you'll be fine if you lose it, remember they do not grow on trees, sir. Ah, uh, um, ah, uh, the chief acolyte murmured, and does the abbot... Oh, no, the abbot would not make a presentation to a sweeper, said Lobsang quickly. Let's say, who does the, uh, does, uh, does the... It's generally done by a senior sweeper, your acolytility. Oh, and, uh, by some happy chance, uh, do you happen to be... Lutze bobbed about. Oh, yes, sir. To the chief acolyte, still floundering in the flood of the turning tide, this was as welcome as the imminent prospect of dry land. He beamed manically. I wonder, I wonder, I wonder, then, if you would be so kind, uh, then, uh, to... Happy to, sir, Lutze swung round. Right now, sir. Oh, please, yes. Right you are. Step forward, Lobsang Lud. Yes, sweeper. Lutze held out the worn robe and the elderly broom. Broom, robe. Do not lose them. We are not made of money, he announced. I thank you for them, said Lobsang. I am honoured. Lobsang bowed. Lutze bowed. With their heads close together and at the same height, Lutze hissed, Very surprising. Thank you. Nicely mythic, the whole thing. Definitely one for the scrolls, but bordering on smug. Do not try it again. Right. They both stood up. And, uh, what happens now? said the chief acolyte. He was a broken man and he knew it. Nothing was going to be the same after this. Nothing, really, said Lutze. Sweepers get on with sweeping. You take that side, lad, and I'll take this. But here is time, said the chief acolyte. The son of when? There is so much we have to ask. There is so much I will not tell, said Lobsang, smiling. The abbot leaned forward and dribbled in the chief acolyte's ear. He gave up. Of course, it is not up to us to question you, he said, backing away. No, said Lobsang, it is not. I suggest you all get on with your very important work, because this plaza is going to need all my attention. There were frantic hand signals amongst the senior monks, and gradually, reluctantly, the monastery staff moved away. "'They'll be watching us from every place they can hide,' mumbled Lutze when the sweepers were alone. "'Oh, yes,' said Lobsang. "'So, how are you, then?' "'Very well. And my mother is happy, and she will retire with my father.' "'What? A cottage in the country, that sort of thing?' "'Not quite. Similar, though.' There was no sound for a while but the brushing of two brooms. Then Lobsang said, "'I'm aware, Lutze,' that it is usual for an apprentice to give a small gift or token to his master when he finishes his apprenticeship. "'Possibly,' said Lutze, straightening up. "'But I don't need anything. I've got my mat, my bowl, and my way.' 
Every man has something he desires, said Lobsang. Ha! Got you there, then, Wonder Boy. I'm eight hundred years old. I've run through all my desires long ago. Oh, dear, that is a shame. I hoped I could find something. And now Lobsang straightened up and swung his broom onto his shoulder. In any case, I must leave, he said. There is so much still to do. I'm sure there is, said Lutze. I'm sure there is. There's the whole stretch under the trees, for one thing. And while we're on the subject, wonder boy, did you let that witch have her broomstick back? Lobsang nodded. Let us just say, I put things back. It's a lot newer than it was, too. Ha! <laughs> said Lutze, sweeping up a few more petals. Just like that. Just like that. So easily does a thief of time repay his debts. Lobsang must have caught the rebuke in the tone. He stared down at his feet. Well, perhaps not all of them, I admit, he said. Oh, said Lutze, still apparently fascinated by the end of his own broom. But when you have to save a world, you cannot think of one person, you see, because one person is a part of that world, Lobsang went on. Really? said the sweeper. You think so? You've been talking to some very strange people, my lad. But now I have time, said Lobsang earnestly, and I hope she'll understand. It's amazing what a lady will understand if you find the right way of putting it, said Lutze. Best of luck, lad. You didn't do so bad on the whole. And is it not written? There's no time like the present. Lobsang smiled at him and vanished. Lutze went back to his sweeping. After a while, he smiled at a memory. An apprentice gives a gift to the master, eh? As if Lutze could want anything that time could give him. And he stopped and looked up and laughed out loud. Overhead, swelling as he watched, the cherries were ripening. Tick! In some place that had not existed before, and only existed now for this very purpose, stood a large, gleaming vat. Ten thousand gallons of delicate fondant sugar cream infused with essence of violet and stirred into dark chocolate, said Chaos. There are also strata of hazelnut praline in rich butter cream and areas of soft caramel for that special touch of delight. So... You're saying that this vat could exist somewhere in a truly infinite everywhere, and therefore it can exist here, said Death. Indeed, said Chaos. But it no longer exists in the place where it should exist. No, it should, now, exist here. The maths is easy, said Chaos. Ah, well, maths, said Death dismissively. Generally I never get much further than subtraction. In any case, chocolate is hardly a rare commodity, said Chaos. There are planets covered in the stuff. Really? Indeed. It might be best, said Death, if news like that did not get about. He walked back to where Unity was waiting in the darkness. You do not need to do this, he said. What else is there, said Unity. I have betrayed my own kind, and I am hideously insane. I can never be at home anywhere, and staying here would be an agony. She stared into the chocolate abyss. A dusting of sugar sparkled on its surface. Then she slipped out of her dress. To her amazement she felt embarrassed about doing so, but still drew herself up haughtily. 
"'Spoon!' she commanded, and held out her right hand imperiously. Chaos gave a silver ladle a final theatrical polish and passed it to her. "Goodbye," said Unity. "'Do pass on my best wishes to your granddaughter.' She walked a few steps back, turned, broke into a run, and took off into a perfect swallow-dive. The chocolate closed over her with barely a sound. Then the two watchers waited until the fat, lazy ripples had died away. "'Now there's a lady with style,' said Chaos. "'What a waste!' "'Yes, I thought so. "'Well, it's been fun. "'Up to that point, anyway. "'And now I must be off,' said Chaos. "'You're continuing with the milk round. "'People rely on me.' Death looked impressed. "'It's going to be interesting to have you back.' he said. "'Yeah, it is,' said Chaos. "'You're not coming?' "'I'm going to wait here for a while.' "'Why?' "'Just in case.' "'Ah.' "'Yes.' It was some minutes later that Death reached into his robe and pulled out a lifetimer that was small and light enough to have been designed for a doll. He turned around. "'But I died,' said the Shade of Unity." "'Yes,' said Death. "'This is the next part.' Tick. Emma Robertson sat in the classroom with wrinkled brow, chewing on her pencil. Then, rather slowly, but with the air of one imparting great secrets, she set to work. "'We went to Lanka, where there are witches. They are kind. They grow herbs,' she wrote. "'We met this witch,' She was very jowl and sang us a snog abot a hedgehog. It had difficult words. Jason tried to kick her cat. It chased him up a tree. I know a lot about witches. Now they do not have warts. They do not eat you. They are just like your grain, except your grain does not know difficult words. At her high desk, Susan relaxed. There was nothing like a classroom of bent heads. A good teacher used whatever materials there were to hand, and taking the class to visit Mrs. Ogg was an education in herself. Two educations. A classroom going well had its own smell. A hint of pencil shavings, poster paints, long dead stick insect, glue, and of course the faint aroma of Billy. There had been an uneasy meeting with her grandfather. She'd raged that he hadn't told her things, and he'd said of course he hadn't, if you told humans what the future held, it wouldn't. That made sense. Of course it made sense. It was good logic. The trouble was that Susan was only mostly logical. And so, now, things were back in that uneasy, rather cool state where they spent most of their time in the tiny little family that ran on dysfunctionality. Maybe, she thought, that was a normal family state. When push came to shove... Thank you, Mrs. Ogg, she'd always remember that phrase now. They'd rely on each other automatically, without a thought. Apart from that, they kept out of one another's way. She hadn't seen the death of rats lately. It was too much to hope that he was dead. In any case, it hadn't slowed him down so far. That thought made her think about the contents of her desk. Susan was very strict about eating in class, and took the view that if there were rules, then they applied to everyone, even her. Otherwise, they were merely tyranny. But rules were there to make you think before you broke them. There was still half a box of Higgs and Meekin's cheapest assortment tucked in there amongst the books and papers. 
Opening the lid carefully and slipping her hand in was easy, and so was the maintenance of a suitably teachery face while she did so. Questing fingers found a chocolate in the nest of empty paper cups and told her that it was a damned nougat. But she was resolute. Life was tough. Sometimes you got nougat. Then she briskly picked up the keys and walked to the stationery cupboard with what she hoped was the purposeful step of someone about to check on the supply of pencils. After all, you never knew with pencils. They needed watching. The door clicked behind her, leaving only the dim light through the transom. She put the chocolate in her mouth and shut her eyes. A faint, cardboardy sound made her open them. The lids were lifting on the boxes of stars. They spilled out and whirled up into the shadows of the cupboard, brilliant against the darkness, a galaxy in miniature. Susan watched them for a while and then said, All right, you have my full attention, whoever you are. At least, that was what she meant to say. The peculiar stickiness of the nougat caused it to come out as, All right, you have my full attention, whoever you are. Damn! The stars spiralled around her head, and the cupboard's interior darkened into interstellar black. If this is you deaf of rats, she began. It's me, said Lobsang. Tick. Even with Nougat, you can have a perfect moment. That is the end of Thief of Time. It was written by Terry Pratchett and read by Stephen Briggs.